LBZ original. Is that a refrigerator right here? It, no. Yes. I don't know what, oh, it is. <laughs> is it real loud? I can hear it. Should um, I unplug it? Hello again and welcome to Studio BZ. I'm John Keller. Paula Ebbett is off this week and mm. drum roll please. Sitting in, our mystery guest is unveiled. It is <laughs> Liam Martin. Good to be with you, John. Nice I'm to not, have I'm you, not Liam. Paula. I'm not Paula. I'll never be Paula, but this should be fun. Yeah, you're not bad. Don't don't take it personally. It's it's great to have you here. We're looking Good forward. To be here. And we've got, I hopefully, uh, an interesting show. Former Governor Michael Dukakis sat down mm-hmm. with me the other day, of course, the 1988 Democratic presidential nominee. Now he's a highly regarded teacher at Northeastern and UCLA. He'll talk about what he's doing today and talk about uh, young people and at his students and others, their political activism, the potential impact they may have, the pitfalls they may face, and some eyebrow-raising anecdotes about his college activism days. Did you know mm. Michael Dukakis once had hair down to his waist? No. no. I made that up. He never did. <laughs> no. But anyway, it's an interesting talk with the former governor. And and did you get to talk at all about turkey carcasses with him? No. We Usually left, that comes we'll, up. We'll have him back around Thanksgiving okay. time. Yes, you can have him in, have some turkey carcasses some conversation. We also talked, uh, Paul and I actually talked this week with uh, the Love Letters columnist for the Boston Globe, uh, Meredith Goldstein. She has a new book out called Can't Help Myself. Really fascinating look at her life as an advice columnist, how she convinced the Boston Globe in 2008 in the height of the recession to even launch this advice column. And then as well, she gives some advice to people who might be overwhelmed by the current online dating scene, all the apps that might be out there, her advice for how to navigate that terrain. You know what cracks me up about her column? She's so nice and and uh, uh, empathic mm-hmm. in in her advice, and and then they open it up to comments from readers, and the readers are vicious. Yeah, you know, well, typical. Yeah, you know what's funny about her book, and we get into this in the in the interview in a little bit. She includes the comments from some of those people in her book, and she tells us why it is she wanted to do that. Right. It's pretty that, interesting. That sounds great. And then uh, gun control. It's been a huge topic. Of course, mm-hmm. we had the horrendous uh, massacre in Las Vegas last fall, then uh, the uh, uh, Parkland, Florida uh, Valentine's Day massacre in February, and again, just the other day in Texas. Is it possible that the tide is turning when it comes to getting tougher gun laws? You see uh, country stars now like Garth Brooks and Kelly Clarkson coming out publicly in uh, urging government to take action that would have been unthinkable just a few years ago because of the close relationship between country music and gun culture, if you will. We'll talk to John Rosenthal, the founder of Stop Handgun Violence. He's a veteran of the war for tougher gun laws. He'll assess uh, whether there's cause for optimism now. case could be made that our next guest is the most significant living political figure here in Massachusetts. Mm. And that's saying something because we tend to have some pretty big players on the national scene and locally, of course, uh, uh, in our political culture here. But when you mention the name Michael Dukakis, uh, it evokes strong reactions, certainly locally from people who came to love or hate him or be puzzled by him during his three terms as governor, certainly from people across the country who remember his ill-fated run against George W. Bush in 1988. 
But when we sat down to talk the other day, the governor, who is now in his 80s, as sharp as ever and as opinionated as ever, when you think Michael Dukakis, Liam, what do you think of? What, what's word association? I think technocrat. I think turkey carcass. Right? I think big dig. Right. Interesting. Well, we mm. talked. We didn't talk turkey carcasses, <laughs> but we talked about some of those other topics. Governor Dukakis is famous for every Thanksgiving. For how many years has it been? Decades now. He requests people to bring to his home their leftover turkey carcasses. And my understanding is he makes soup. Yeah. Out of the carcasses. You can make stock by by boiling down the carcass. Yeah. And he is notorious for. You know, being able to squeeze a nickel and get six pennies out of it, if you'll pardon the old expression there. And I guess I've never tried that. Have you ever tried that? I haven't tried his soup. I've tried my dad's turkey carcass soup. Really? Delicious. Yeah. It's got all the flavor and you just soak it in. And like, But I, I have not tried his. Well, why throw something like that away? As, yeah. my, as my father would say, hey, don't waste that. That's good gear. <laughs> That's right. Don't you hate turkeys, I, I I do not like turkeys. I don't mind the taste of a dead turkey. <laughs> The poor millennials are, to my mind, the most stereotyped generation yet, mainly because they're such a focus of media and social media. And I think they get a really, really bad rap in some ways. But you were in there at Northeastern dealing on a day-to-day basis. Three months at UCLA as well. And UCLA. So I get both coasts. And these are both millennials and I guess at this point some of your students are are post-millennial generation. For sure. Um, You tell me. When it comes to politics and the kind of political culture they might build in the future, what are you picking up from them? What are you seeing? It's a very interesting phenomenon going on these days. Most of the students I have are not great fans of Donald Trump, at least at Northeastern. But he's turned them on to public service, John. <laughs> they're, they're pouring into my office every day. How do we get involved this, that, and the other thing? And particularly at a university which has a co-op program so that I can be helpful to them and give me a chance to work in various political, public service, uh, governmental, nonprofit kinds of places. Um, these kids are terrific. I mean, I just came back from uh, a speech up in Salem and I dropped into Seth Moulton's headquarters. Yeah, the congressman. His, the congressman, sure. his, his district office in Salem. Half the staff people were students of mine. Mm-hmm. And as we get in, to the car to come back here. Another one came by who just bought herself a cup of coffee and was on her way to the... And they're wonderful, wonderful kids. And they're doing very, very interesting stuff. Well, so I'm encouraged in that sense. I'm obviously concerned about the country these days, but uh, you have to be inspired when you see these young people well, getting you, involved. Well, you were once a 20-something a political activist eager to change the world. Is it the same thing being repeated? And if not, what's the difference? Yeah, I think it is the same thing, only it's much more intense than it was when I was around. Now, remember, I was a child of the Depression. Um, Was a kid in elementary school during World War II. Korea, Vietnam, all that kind of stuff. The McCarthy era, which was not fun, let me tell you. Someday, someday I'll tell you a story about me and the McCarthy era. Tell, and, tell me now. Well, very interesting. You know. So I'm a kid from, a Greek kid from Boston. 
who decides to go to a Quaker college called Swarthmore College, nine miles outside of Philadelphia. This is 1951. I had never been out of New England. You know, in those days, you didn't jump, around, jump on a plane and go places. So I find myself, I don't know a Quaker from a Shaker. I have no idea what this is all about. But I know it's a pretty good school. I was a pretty good athlete, so I wanted to continue intercollegiate athletics, at least at the small college level. And I get down there, and the first thing I and my classmates discovered was that the barber shops in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania would cut, not cut the hair of black kids in Swarthmore. Very interesting. I subsequently learned the same thing was happening in Lenox, Massachusetts. So it wasn't just, you know, south of us. Um, so we decided to boycott the barber shops, and I became the campus barber. I mean, I made my walking around money cutting hair on the third floor. That accounts all. for all those horrendous haircuts we see in pictures from the 50s. Um, well, I had just one style, <laughs> and it was short. Got it. And my customers used to complain that once I put that sheet around their necks, they then had to listen to my brand of political pap, you know, captives. Um, okay, so it's the McCarthy era. I'm at a pretty active campus politically, and I get involved politically. Um, four years later, I graduate, and six weeks after that, I'm being sworn into the Fargo building as a member of the United States Army, and with a motley group of 30, get on the train to head to Fort Dix, New Jersey for our first eight weeks of basic training. Three days after we get there, John, we have what passes for a personnel interview. You know, five minutes with another draftee who's a personnel specialist who decides what's gonna happen to you for the next two years except my guy had a file on me. This is in pre-computer America. You know, Manila file. With every single political activity that I've ever engaged in at Swarthmore College. Interesting. So the interview goes something like this. So I see you ran a fundraiser for the American Civil Liberties Union while you were on the Swarthmore campus. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. And you were the chairman of Students for Democratic Action, which was the student wing of the ADA, the Liberal Democratic Organization. And that was the interview. Where do you think they got that information? This is in 19, what, from 51 to 55. Mm -hmm. The FBI had a tap on the Swarthmore switchboard and was recording every single phone call that went through there and paying somebody to take down notes on guys like me that were being involved politically. That was a scary time. That was a scary time. Scarier than now? Scarier in that sense, um, I think what's scary now for me is that there seems to be a bipartisan consensus that we're going to be at war perpetually in this world. Now, I'm going to be 85 in November. I feel great. But I've got a flock of, I've got three great kids and I've got eight grandkids of our own and four that we inherited. And I want those kids to grow up in a world that can resolve its problems without killing people. And I'm not being naive about this. I really do think, you know, five-sixths of the world right now is conflict-free. That's never happened in the history of mankind. And um, we're spending $700 billion a year on this military stuff, and all we do is get into trouble. And uh, that's what concerns me. Well, let's go back to the 50s again. And uh, President Eisenhower warned about the military-industrial complex. And we're in the middle of a Cold War, Isn't right? Isn't it a straight line from then to now? Except, shouldn't we learn some things? And the destructive power of nuclear weapons today makes the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki look like cap pistols. I mean, these are just unbelievable. 
Um, and it isn't just that we've got a guy in the White House who, who starts talking about how we're, you know, we're going to blow them up and all this kind of stuff. It's um, our collective failure to come up with a way to deal with these problems without shooting each other. And I'm not being naive in this. I've been around for a long time, needless to say. But I don't think it would be that difficult. And frankly, and we may disagree on this, I don't know. I think the way the Iranian nuclear agreement was developed and put together is exactly what ought to happen here. You know, it wasn't just a U.S.-Iranian thing. The U.N. Security Council was deeply involved, including Russia and China. Uh, Russia in particular played and has played an important role in implementing that thing. And uh, I think it reflects the fact that people don't want to be blown up with nuclear weapons. So what are we doing? And this, I'm sorry to say, and I liked Obama a lot, was an initiative first of the Obama administration. Sadly, it's being carried forward by the Trump administration. We're going to spend a trillion dollars, John, on modernizing our nuclear arsenal. Now, what does that consist of? 4,000 nuclear weapons. 50 of them would destroy the planet. What are we doing here? Why are we spending a trillion dollars to modernize that arsenal? I don't, I don't understand it. And we certainly do have needs here in the United States. I mean, I don't want to get into the subject of trains and connecting North and South Station by rail and high-speed rail and so on, but it's embarrassing to go to Europe or go to Asia and run and ride those train systems and then come back to the United States. Positively embarrassing. Our infrastructure's falling apart all over the place. And um, I just... I just think it is so important that um, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives, millennials, whatever, that we focus on this. I mean, I refuse to accept the, the, the notion that, that we're going to be perpetually at war all over the world. I just don't accept that. Before I let you go, I want to circle back to what you said about how the students at Northeastern and UCLA, and UCLA yeah. are energized yeah. by this, the Trump administration. Right. I guess you could call it sort of negative energy that yeah. they're feeding off of. They want to get involved. They want to push back. Um, a slightly different type of energy among young people was unleashed by the initial Obama campaign. Un, uh, I don't know if it was unprecedented, but an extraordinarily sure. healthy turnout of younger right. voters right. Uh, in that election and in his re-election. They didn't turn out in anything close to that, those numbers for Hillary Clinton. So we've seen young people get energized yep. and involved before, and yet here we are having this somewhat depressing conversation about the slowness of positive change. What do you see in your students? Give us some op optimism here. What do you see in them that suggests we may be ready to shatter this cycle? Well, they're turned on to politics these days. And that's a good thing. I mean, they're pouring into my office. How do I get involved? Will it be sustained? Well, there are <laughs> interesting, not so much ups and downs, but enthusiasm. So they got very enthusiastic about uh, Obama or Obama won. He was reelected. Um, but I don't think, and I was admirer of President Obama, but I don't think uh, the Obama administration and, uh, and he himself in some ways 
actively attempted to bring these young people into the Democratic Party. They created something called Organizing for America, remember OFA? Yeah. But it was separate. It was over here. Um, and when he left, it withered. Well, it's around. Yeah. But where toward, is it? Toward what end? Now, yeah. for whatever it was worth when I was governor, I tried very hard to make sure that these young people, and we had a lot of them, I mean, thousands working for me, would get deeply and actively involved in the Democratic Party in Massachusetts on an ongoing basis, even as I had back when I was younger. And, uh, and I think that's a role that the presidents and the people around them have to play. And in this particular case, it didn't happen. So that this activism is not just focused on a charismatic figure of, when he or she moves on, exactly. it, it wanes, but it's, it results in these young people actually becoming the Getting power involved, brokers of the future. Organizing yeah. at the grassroots level, running for office. I mean, what did I start as, John? An elected town meeting member in the town of Brookline, one of 240. How'd I get elected? Printed up some cards, went out and rang every single doorbell in the precinct, stood in front of the polling place for 13 hours. And I was an elected town meeting member. Big, big deal, right? No, but that was the beginning. That then led to the legislature and so on and so forth. And uh, I think all of us who, who get elected to public office have a real responsibility to reach out to a lot of these young people who bust their backs for us in these campaigns and make sure that's a commitment and involvement that is more than just for us and for our campaigns. I think it's really an essential part of, on both sides, to tell you the truth. And uh, I don't think that's been happening. Anyway, my hope is that we can use this opportunity. You know, the gun thing has also turned on young people, as you can imagine. Very important. You know, maybe that's their Vietnam in this generation. But it's just so important that when you strike a spark, um, that those of us who've been around for a while encourage these young people to get deeply and actively involved. Think about running for office. Think about really getting into public service. And I push it very hard, John, not on a partisan basis, you know. If I have a student who happens to be conservative, it's fine by me, you know, as long as he or she will get deeply and actively involved. And I try very hard to make sure that they do that. That's Governor Michael Dukakis, and Governor, I hope I'm as sharp and passionate as you are when I'm 85. Well, you know what my mother used to say, and she was a very wise woman. In fact, she was the first Greek young woman ever to go away to college, in the, unescorted in the history of the United States, John. You know, went to Bates College, thanks to an elementary school principal in Haverhill, Massachusetts, when she came over here as an immigrant kid. But uh, she used to say, if you want to live a long life, pick your parents carefully. She lived since she was 100. And Kitty's dad was conducting the Pops when he was 94. So, um, good genes. We're planning to stick around for a while. And this wife of mine at 81, you know, with all due respect to everybody else, has to be the best looking Medicare recipient in America. So, <laughs> we're at it. No argument. And we're blessed with three great kids and a flock of grandkids. And as you know, both of us continue to be deeply involved and, and love doing it and hope, you know, in our own way, we're making a difference. Thanks, Governor. Great to see you. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. Okay, Liam, hmm? it's, it's Stump the Anchorman time. <laughs> I'm going to play a soundbite, and I want you to try to guess who this is speaking. Ready? 
Yes. Okay, let's roll it. Just remember when you march, you have a voice and you're representing yourself when you march. So how you march is so important, okay? Be patient, be loving, because there might be some cross voices that enter in this march. Be tolerant, be loving. Do not let hate win. Because this is something new for it. Your generation is the generation for the school shootings. Let's make sure the next generation is not. That was a message directed at the Parkland school kids and the whole march for our lives. Mm-hmm. Any idea who that was? Was it Garth Brooks? Bingo. Really? Now, does it surprise you to hear a big country star like Garth Brooks delivering a, a pro-gun control message? Like it does. That? When you think a lot uh, about a lot of the um, more famous country stars over the past few decades, they either are not politically active or if they are, they tend to be on the right side of things. Toby Keith uh, is a conservative sure. and a big country music star. I honestly didn't know where Garth Brooks stood on politics, but I had seen something about his message to the Parkland students, and that's why I thought that might be him. Yeah. And uh, he's not alone. There's been a real movement in recent years, particularly over the last year or so, of mostly younger country stars standing up and saying, look, you know, we, we, we realize a lot of our audience are gun owners. Uh, Kelly Clarkson, who made a statement, a pro-gun control statement on the Billboard Awards the other night, she's a multiple gun owner. She has a concealed carry permit. Mm. And these people have been standing up and saying, this has to stop. Maybe it's a fallout from the massacre at the Las Vegas country concert last October. Jason Aldean has been outspoken since then. He was on stage when it happened. Exactly. So uh, this is one of the topics that we raised with the man behind the billboard that you drove by on the mass turnpike for many years with that kept track of the number of deaths related to gun violence in America. It's no longer up there, uh, but I'm sure many of our listeners have seen that over the years. His name is John Rosenthal, and his organization, Stop Handgun Violence, has been in the vanguard of the push for tougher gun laws for years here in Massachusetts and across the nation. And we talked with John Rosenthal about what's happening in the country music world, whether it's a part of something bigger. Here's what he had to say. So, John, you saw Kelly Clarkson's thing. Are you aware of what she said? Yes. So what is the significance of what she did on that show the other night? Well, you know, it's it's similar to the significance of what what Dick Sporting Goods did and BlackRock and other you know financial institutions. You know, finally, everyone, whether you're in country music or in business or a parent or a student, um, nobody is exempt from the horrors of the daily epidemic of gun violence. And it's impacting everybody in all kinds of ways. None of us are safe as a result of unrestricted access to guns. And as I've been saying for many, many years, you know, at some point, I, you know, this is going to increase and expand into the white community and you know members of congress and lots of cities you know uh and lots of legislators didn't care that it was just and certainly the nra didn't care that it was just black on black urban violence well guess what now it's white guys 
you know, doing mass shootings in suburban and rural areas. And all of a sudden it's an epidemic. This epidemic has been going on for decades and more Americans have been killed from guns in this country since 1968 than all U.S. servicemen and women killed in all foreign wars combined. And finally, the country music people who are connected to the NRA are paying attention. Well, well, there's a relationship there between country and the NRA that's also been going on for decades. They have a website called NRA Country, which promotes country artists, many of the biggest names in the business, uh, and claiming they they not only uh, that they support the the lifestyle, the NRA lifestyle, the pro gun uh, philosophy, if you will, and yet now. Not just with country artists standing up and speaking out against gun violence, but just recently, I I understand uh, several dozen country artists were dropped from the website. It's unclear whether they demanded to have their names pulled or they were just dropped because they can no longer tolerate or no longer desire association with that brand. To you, is that a significant cultural milestone? It's very significant um, because, you know, these these country stars have been so tied to the NRA and this lifestyle of of freedom and uh, open spaces and hunting while, you know, the NRA, you know, has a, you know, a sort of a very is a cultural organization that supports unrestricted access to guns. And it's starting to impact the country music scene in really brutal ways. I mean, even I have been at this for decades. Even I was surprised, you know, when someone opened fire in Las Vegas and within minutes at a country music festival, within minutes, shot 550 people, killed 59 people, a total of 851 people wounded at that concert. And nobody did anything about it in the Congress or any state legislature, except for Massachusetts, where we banned the bump stock, which turns a semi-automatic into an automatic weapon. And so these concerts, which are very public, um, you know, are now being targeted just like schools um, and movie theaters and a lot of places where, you know, the general public, you know, has felt safe but can't feel safe anymore because of unrestricted access to guns and the daily mass shooting of four or more people in this country every single day. Well, now, what about with regard to political reaction to what appears to be this growing backlash? What about Florida, where after Parkland, I happen to be down there watching the local news a couple of weeks after the massacre at, uh, at Douglas High? And first of all, it, it was still, needless to say, the lead story on the news, but the uh, anti-gun or pro-gun control polling statewide was off the charts. And even Governor Rick Scott, uh, complete with his 100% rating from the NRA, uh, sat down and signed a bill with at least some modest advancements in Florida gun laws. Isn't that at least somewhat of a sign of progress? It's progress. It's just really sad. Are we, are we really a country with no empathy where we you know, don't do anything and we don't feel anything until it happens to us? 
Um, but sadly, you know, that is the case in Florida. Florida is a state with the some of the weakest gun laws in the nation and the highest gun death rate, whereas Massachusetts has the toughest gun laws and the lowest gun death rate. We've proven the NRA's worst nightmare, that gun laws save lives. You don't have to ban most guns to do it. Um, so, you know, is it going to happen, you know, a mass shooting in every state before a legislature and a governor decides it's important to them? I, I hope not. But what's happening in, in Florida, you know, and with the March for Our Lives student movement is significant. Uh, it's the first time in 25 years of being involved in gun violence prevention that I've seen a student movement or a, a movement, you know, build among young people who never really got involved in this. And I think it's largely because we've, you know, Parkland was unique. It was sort of an affluent community. The kids that school had a real theater program where, you you know, kids were confident about speaking out publicly. I also, you know, think that we've reached a tipping point. I mean, there, Parkland was like the 300th um, school shooting since Sandy Hook just five years ago. Um, 150,000 kids have been directly impacted, like in schools where there were school shootings since Sandy Hook. And um, I'm hoping that we have reached a tipping point. And if we sustain or we help the kids sustain this March for Our Lives movement, you know, that's like three and a half to four million more voters in November. If they vote on the gun issue, we can throw the spineless members of Congress out. If you look back in history, we're often confronted with toxic situations, poisonous behaviors, uh, smoking, for instance, and the prevalence of that, racism, you name it. And yet, even though we're confronted with the damage this is causing, it takes generational change for the social and political change to really kick in. Is that what we're seeing here now with gun violence, a generational change? You're seeing these younger country music stars uh, just ditch this whole traditional alliance with the NRA. You're seeing the kids from Parkland and elsewhere. Is that what's happening here? A new generation is just not going to stand for this BS anymore? I think it's it's more that we've reached reached a tipping point where nobody feels safe anymore, nor should they. We're safer here in Massachusetts because we have the most comprehensive gun laws, the lowest gun death rate, the most effective gun laws. But anybody can drive to New Hampshire, Maine, Vermont and buy a thousand AR-15s and large capacity ammunition magazines and ammunition without a background check or proof of ID from private gun sellers. So 30 states are like that. I'm hoping, John, that you're right. I'm hoping this is a new generational shift and a cultural shift like the war in Vietnam, like the civil rights movement, like the divestiture movement. And if that's true, it will happen over time. And in the meantime, it'll do nothing to help save the 300 people shot today and the 100 people who will die today, tomorrow, and for the next many years until enough people feel like it's their problem and hold their elected officials accountable wherever they live. John, last thing. We have a big election coming up in really just a few months now, this fall. President Trump and the Republicans have made it clear where they stand on advancing the causes you're talking about. They're not interested. The Democrats claim they are. Do you believe them? 
Do you expect them to make this an issue in the fall? And if they do, do you think it'll go anywhere? So, John, I am I'm cautiously optimistic. Um, And I'll tell you that when President Obama won office and and was in the White House and Democrats were in control of the House and the Senate, uh, Governor uh, Deval Patrick asked me to go to Washington to talk about how Massachusetts has been, has so successfully reduced injuries and deaths and, and uh, to talk to at the white house and talk with the president's advisor on justice and regulatory policy who went to Harvard Kennedy school, saw our billboard all the time. And I said, why won't the president renew the ban on assault weapons and require background checks for all private gun sales like he campaigned for. And I was handed a letter signed by 65 Democrats. Now this is when Democrats were in control of the house, the Senate and the white house saying this letter said, don't touch guns if you want health care. And Gabby Giffords was on that list before she was shot. And um, and I was told maybe second term. Well, it, it became a second term thing for the president after Sandy Hook. And the president cried on TV and he asked the Congress to do something and they did nothing. I am hoping that we can change the Congress and this time around Democrats, when they're in control, um, can actually change national gun laws um, from the disastrous public policy with disastrous public health outcomes that exist today to something very similar to what Massachusetts has done. John, if people want to find out more about the work you and your colleagues do at Stop Handgun Violence, where do they go? StopHandgunViolence.org. You can download this Boston Globe piece, the seven steps that we've done in Massachusetts to reduce uh, gun deaths. Massachusetts is the hope, and and someday I hope every state replicates or Congress replicates what we've proven to work. John Rosenthal, Stop Handgun Violence. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Meredith Goldstein is the Love Letters advice columnist at the Boston Globe. She has a new book out called Can't Help Myself about her advice column and her own love life. So, Meredith, thanks for joining us here on the WBC. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, First question. You pitched yourself in 2008 to the Globe to write a, a love letters column. Why did you feel like you had something to give people, that your advice was something people would want? Well, you know, the Globe had run advice columns at the time, but they were more nationally syndicated. And not being from Boston, I will tell you that people from Boston really like to read about Boston. Yes. So I thought that <laughs> people did. would really be into a local advice column, something that, you know, would include problems that maybe were written by people who yeah. down the street. Red maybe? Sox so, dating right, a Yankees right. fan or something. Absolutely. So I really felt like the Globe needed it, and I was already writing about sort of relationship issues more generally, Mm -hmm. so it seemed like I was the right person to Mm -hmm. do it. Interesting. In the book here, uh, at the end of each chapter, you have questions and answers from readers. Yes, from the column. And why did you want to include those commentators in the story? One of the best parts of the column, I think, is not so much my advice, but Mm -hmm. all of the comments written by readers. And there's a really robust and wonderful comment section, and sometimes I think the advice in the comment section beats my own sometimes mm. sometimes uh, so when I when I was writing the memoir and including some letters I really wanted to add in some of the most memorable comments and also just to show that 
these days in the modern age, an advice column is often a community. It doesn't right. stop with my answer. It keeps going throughout the day. And that's one way in which an advice column is very different from Dear Abby or Ann mm-hmm. Landers, which we used to get, you know, in yeah. newspapers. There are also dating apps. There's social media. There's that revenge porn out there. How do you give advice on dating when a lot of these issues... We haven't encountered them before. They're new in a way still. You know, some of the problems I I hear are so timeless, right? They're like, I I get broken up with, I'm sad, I'm looking for someone. And then some are so specific to our time, like technology. I think right now the biggest problem I see that seems so now is people not knowing how much to communicate. That there's so many ways to communicate so many times a day that we could be texting our partners and Snapchatting all day long. So I think people are really grappling with how much they should be giving each other attention. So that's a now problem. And I think it's just really paying attention to how people feel, what seems natural, and knowing that everybody's a little bit different. But um, yeah, Yeah. technology is rough. And listening to the way dating people parse every text, it just, it's exhausting. (laughs) I never had to do it, thank God, but it just sounds exhausting. Um, One (laughs) question that we had was, are you ever taken aback by what people and how much people will tell you? You give the example in the book about a woman saying that her boyfriend moved far away. She still had his Gmail password yes. and was tempted to keep checking his email after they'd broken up. I mean, that is a real ethics disaster right there. That's Are been, you shocked by some of these things? That's been my biggest surprise, specifically letters about snooping, because mm. I just feel like privacy is privacy, and partly also because I'm not technologically savvy enough to snoop on anyone. But, <laughs> but my readers, a lot of these readers will feel comfortable or will, even if they don't feel comfortable, check their partner's email account, break into Facebook, pages. So I just think there's there's so much to access. It's tempting. It's very tempting. Mm. You have a chapter, I thought this was very interesting, where you talk about how sad millennials are. You write, the most dire letters come from healthy, attractive, employed 20-somethings who claimed their lives were the worst, all caps. Do you think that's just the way that millennials speak, or is there something about millennials and something about their experience, whether it's social media or what might be, that really makes their experience different? Well, I'm of the opinion that for all the articles about millennials are ruining this and that that millennials are actually wonderful and Mm -hmm. care so much, which is why I'm getting so many miserable letters from millennial (laughs) young people. Um, And I I honestly think that they're the first generation that experienced teenage years, 20-something years with social media Mm. and a constant basis of comparison. Mm. So whereas Mm. I didn't know what other people were doing when I was 25, they know exactly what everyone else is doing. They can see their friends' wedding photos, their kids, everyone. And you know what is about social media too? People curate their lives on social media and their lives look perfect and then you're comparing that. Right, and I just didn't have that. I had a glorious time in my 20s when that didn't exist. So I really have a lot of empathy and and, um, you know, I think it's a younger generation of people. Yeah. They're actually doing a great job handling a lot of information at once. I was happy to be oblivious to what everyone else was doing. Um, <laughs> final question. What would you say is the most important thing for people to remember while they're dating? You know, the advice that you tend to give over and over again. I mean, I think, actually, I really tell people that if they feel a dating fatigue, if it's exhausting, Mm. you're allowed to take breaks. I think right now it's so easy to date because of apps. You can constantly be looking that it can begin to feel like a job and you can lack passion for doing it. And if you're feeling like, oh, I don't want to go out tonight with this person, give yourself a week off. Give yourself two weeks off. It's okay. Well, Meredith Goldstein, thank you so much for coming on. The Love Letters columnist for the Boston Globe. She's got a new book out called I Can't Help Myself and then a novel coming out in June as well. So we got a lot of stuff going on. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Very fun.
So, John, I have a confession to make. Before interviewing Meredith Goldstein, I, I was and still remain to a certain extent a skeptic on the advice column in general. Uh, she's not a psychologist. She says it freely in her book. I'm not a psychologist. I don't necessarily have any business giving people advice. But she said, I had always been the person in my family who gave love advice. I gave love advice to my mom after she was divorced. I gave love advice to my sister. And I loved the book. I thought it was hilarious. She had a couple of one-liners in there that had me laughing out loud. Really, really funny book. And she has a very interesting love life that she shares in the book as well. Wow. Yeah. Now, you've got a young daughter, right? I do. How old is she? Almost four. Okay. Well, that's old enough for you to have thought about what you're going to tell her about dating and relationships <laughs> when she gets older, right? I guess. I mean, that's one of those. That's one of those where I put into the into the back of my mind as yep. much as possible, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a son, also, right? Yes, a one year old son. Okay, so Just maybe a little on. earlier to be thinking of that for him. But <laughs> yeah, uh, with both of them, I hope. Well, what have you? What, uh, you're very happily married. Your wife is lovely. Yes. Yeah. Uh, what uh, What was your guiding philosophy? I mean, what would? How did you? When know? I was dating. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I subscribe to the you just know model. I, when I this we're going to get very personal right now. When I met uh, my now wife, um, I had no interest in dating seriously, even certainly not getting married. I was right in the beginning of my career. I was career focused. I was living in Michigan and didn't necessarily want to stay in Michigan. But when I met her within a couple of weeks, it was very clear that it was going to be a long term thing. And you just kind of you let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. I would say. Oh, listen, I was married at 23. Wow. Our 40th anniversary is coming up. Wow. And best move I ever made. Mm. And I knew almost right away Mm. that she was the one for me. What she was thinking when she agreed to marry me, (laughs) that is a whole nother story, but we don't need to go there. I've met your wife. She gives you fashion tips through me. Are yes. you aware of this? Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm acutely aware of it, but I don't know if we want to pick at that scab, Liam. Okay. All right. Let's just let's just move on. Anyway, great to have you here. Lovely. And, if, and, and uh, Paula, I assume, will be back next week. And if you're wondering why maybe we sound a little different this week, it's because mm-hmm. we do a number of different podcasts out of here at WBZ. And frankly, there was one that was significantly more important than ours. <laughs> so they're using our beautiful new studio mm-hmm. and we did this in the third stall from the we left are, in yes, the men's we, room. John, we are much more important than they are. We <laughs> don't plan ahead. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, We're, we're in, truly in a closet right now. I had assumed that Jonathan Case, our, our, our outstanding producer, would have fought harder <laughs> for us in the pecking order, but that was apparently... I'm sitting directly in front of a uh, refrigerator, which yeah. is humming loudly, but there's food in there and can that's you, the good news. Can you pass the toilet paper would you <laughs> anyway that's it for this week please if you enjoy what you've heard or it infuriates you i don't care but if you want to hear more uh you can subscribe we hope you will tell your friends about it to check it out how to subscribe we're available everywhere you go to listen to podcasts and if you want to reach us on twitter we have our very own website it's at studio bz pod at studio bz pod For the triple-digit figure of subscribers who've already signed up for uh, to listen to us, thank you so much. Please tell a friend. And Liam, come back and join us again sometime. We'll be four digits by the next time I come back. Well, maybe your appearance will put us over the top. There we go. There we go. I like it. Sounds good. First the clothing (laughs) tips, now the podcast (laughs) subscribers. That's it. I'm John Keller. Thanks for joining us here on Studio BZ. And as always, we'll BZing you. Twitter, but we don't have a point.
website. You said you had a website. <laughs> oh. Well, obviously it's a Twitter handle. Obviously it's a Twitter. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. okay. okay.